0: Good afternoon, and I am very grateful. Well, my students, I'm glad you're here because you're supposed to be here, but members of the general public uh, on a Thursday where people seem to be fleeing the campus for Thanksgiving break here or there. I appreciate you coming, um, and especially given the weather. Today, I'm Sean Gowdy. Obviously, um, I've seen that in most of you in the room, I think, at least said hi to you. Uh, and I'm in mean, the English department at not Berkeley, I'm at the Penn State, I was about to say Berkeley, I got my PhD at Berkeley. Um, and so I'm going to talk to you today about uh, the West Indies commerce and a revolution in the early American theater. And so I want to talk about Philadelphia as a new nation uh, in the context then of a specific performative space, which is the theater. And in relationship to a particular play that my class actually began discussion of on Tuesday, um, but not many others have discussed or read. Uh, J. Robinson's uh, The Yorker's Stratagem* or Banana's Wedding. And if you haven't got one, there's a, look. we can call it a Playbill, that's uh, going around that has the original uh, first and only edition uh, title page and the synopsis of the play, the, the cast of characters. So it would be handy for you to refer to in the third movement of today's lecture. Um, Let's see if I got this right. Here we go. So I begin with a a 1794 letter, as you can see, (coughs) sent by Trader James Brown, brother of someone you've heard a little bit about from different speakers this semester, the famous Philadelphia novelist Charles Brockton Brown. Um, And he sends this to his family, and he urges the following. A patriot had said, that theaters are a kind of priesthood, exercise over thoughts. We should examine whether our theaters should not in future be set aside for mercantile purposes. This question is of greatest importance, and I move that it be referred to the Philadelphia Committee of Public Instruction." All right. So, set on a remote, unnamed West Indian Island, the Yorker's stratagem or Banana's wedding appears on its surface to have little to do with James Rounds' imperative. Um, about the theater as a space for public instruction in U.S. commercial policy. Performed three years into Alexander Hamilton's tenure as Washington's aggressively pro commerce Secretary of the Treasury, and, and that's a service that you'll recall Terry Bowden earlier in this um, semester commented on in distinctly unadmiring terms. Uh, Robinson's drama has remained obscure since its publication in 1792. Still, fleeting references, some of which I've got up. Um, a- script for you on the slide, references to Robinson's play by early American historians of drama are telling. Famed playwright and drama historian William Dunlap notes that the Yorkish stratagem evinces much dramatic skill and an inventive use of dialogue well suited to the characters. Having viewed a live performance, Dunlap indicates that the Yorkish stratagem met with universal applause by theater audiences in Philadelphia in New York. An anonymous reviewer corroborated Dunlap's observations, remarking that the public had not been better entertained by a dramatic piece in some time. One thing he really touched on in his review that was uh, important is he noted that there were a variety of striking characters in Robinson's play um, that had novelty about them, that were worthy of commendation. And he also noted something else, which is there was a very good, a very faithful imitation of West Indian Creole dialect in the play. Owing to many of the cast of the members of, of the company um, residing for some time in the West Indies. If briefly in an abstract terms, these accounts gesture to some of Robinson's formal achievements his inventiveness, his originality, his compelling use of dialogue. But the Yorker's stratagem is far more significant than they acknowledge, uh, not only formally, but historically and thematically as well. So by measuring the play, Against relevant historical context and interpretive paradigms, we we might rescue the Yorker Stratagem from obscurity by pointing out the play's artistic achievements as well as its as its relevance as an index to emergent US designs on commercial empire, specifically the new nation's aspiration for US domination in the West Indian trades. Dedicated, and here's the preface um, to the play, dedicated to the generous patrons of the drama and to the worthy sons of Columbia who feel an interest in the American stage, the Yorkist stratagem evokes a triumphant political, commercial, and cultural expansionism, while simultaneously mystifying by means of devices like imposture and blackface, the ways in which U.S. rhetoric about a budding commercial empire relied on paradoxically imperialist tendencies. These are things, I'm going to have three different sections in the talk today, Um, but as we work through them, uh, I want to think about why did Robinson write this play in 1792? In what ways was it shaped by the 1790s post-revolutionary moment in which it was written and performed? And likewise, how did Robinson's play attempt to shape that moment? So here are the first two sections that we'll take up, and then at the end I'll come back The West Indian Genealogies of Early American, Commerce and the Theatre. And two figures for each of these I'll take up in relationship to commerce. One is Alexander Hamilton, and in relationship to the genealogy of the Old American Theatre, the Old American Company of Comedians, which is the company that performs this play, and that Robinson's a part of. J. Robinson was a contract player. With the old American Company of Comedians in the early 1790s. And the Yorker Stratagem was performed on several occasions in Philadelphia at the Southwark Theater and at the company's then home theater on John Street in New York City. Those of you who were at the opening forum, right, of Franklin's Philadelphia in October, remember that Maurice Dromel talked about the architectural designs and their British um, influence, right, um, in the Southwark. Uh, he's, a Penn, he's in the Penn State Theater Department. Founded by Lewis and William Hallam in London, relocated to the American colonies in the 1750s, the Old American Company merged with a professional company in Kingston, Jamaica, led by David Douglas. Lewis Hallam died shortly thereafter. In 1758, the company relocated its home from the West Indies to the North American colonies with Lewis Hallam Jr., Hallam's son, as the company's featured actor. Once there, Douglas erected several playhouses throughout the colonies, including the Southwark in Philadelphia, the first professional theater in North America. Early American theater historian Oda Johnson provides an apt observation about theater companies like the Old American Company of Comedians crisscrossing between the West Indies and North America. The fluid exchange of actors from company to company over a circuit that ran from Nova Scotia to Barbados, reminds us that at times it seems the colonial Anglophone world of the 18th century must have been awash in actors, students, soldiers, gentlemen companies, touring professionals, and solo acts from Savannah, Georgia, to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and Anglophone West Indies of Jamaica, Barbados, and St. Croix. Whether in North America or the West Indies, the old American company, Inheritors of English dramatic styles performed a full range of Elizabethan dramas like Shakespeare's Cymbeline as well as 18th century comedies, many of them set in and or with characters descending from British America including The West Indian by Richard Cumberland and Isaac Bickerstaff's The Padlock. So if we take a look here, um, this is a painting by Charles Wilson Teal who some of you will recall. Uh, was the focus of Wendy Bellion's discussion at that same symposium, um, the Staircase Group. Um, this is one of his portraits of Nancy Hallam as Imogen and Shakespeare's symphony. Uh And this is her performing in Annapolis at another stage that Douglas built in 1771. She's the niece of the founder of the old American company. And then Lewis Hallam Jr., Jr. who I said is the Was the chief actor of the company on its return to North America. He's the first actor to have performed a role in Blackface. He performed that role, which was um, Mungo in um, Bickerstaff's The Padlock. And The Padlock is so named because Mungo, who's a kind of bumbling, drinking, but at times impudent in interesting ways, slave, is locked in um, his master's house and is beaten fairly repeatedly and complains about that, it's a comedy. Um, so, it doesn't sound like it, does not <laughs> um, But Hallam Jr. was the first one to ever played on at least as far as we know, a, a role in blackface on the stage. According to William Dunlap, Lewis Hallam Jr. was not only the first actor to play the West Indian slave Mungo in blackface in America, this is an extraordinary, I should say, popular play in the colonies, as was Cumberland's The West Indian. As was almost any play that had some setting in, in the Americas. Um, but Dunlop tells us he was unrivaled in his death to his death in that role, giving Mungo with a truth derived from the study of the Negro slave character, which Gibdin, who's portrayed here playing it in the English version, right, could not have conceived. And what specifically Hallam's talking about here is something that we're going to want to keep in mind as we go along, which is he's acknowledging that there's something about the fact that Lewis Helm Jr. has spent time living in the West Indies that makes him play this role in a way that's distinct from the way other white actors heretofore in the European stage, for example, had played the role. And so you see here one of um, Mungo's, uh, there their are operatic musical pieces that Mungo sings during the piece. And if you read through that, it's, while you can tell it's a stylized kind of dialect, it's not particularly difficult to read. As my students would tell you when they read the dialect for Bjorker's Stratagem, it's a good deal harder, Creole, I would say, it's more difficult, right? Um, Robinson having spent a lot of time in the West Indies. But what Dunlap's suggesting here is that Lewis Hallam Jr., he would have improvised on this speech. He wouldn't have read it faithfully like this. He would have read it with a Creole dialect um, and and done it in a a much more, as he's claiming, authentic uh, kind of way. On the eve of the revolution, an embargo on theatrical productions was passed by the colonies. And this was something you might recall that Kate Davies spoke about in her lecture on the poet Hannah Griffiths earlier in the semester. And Hallam and Douglas relocated the old American company back to the West Indies where they remained throughout the revolution, and actually where Douglas died. So the following is is the text of the Continental Congress's theater prohibition of October 1774, which would have been repeated in 1778, or which was repeated in 1778, when it was discovered of all people that Washington, an ardent theater lover, was allowing theatricals at Valley Forge. So here in the 1774 version, we will, in our several stations, encourage frugality, economy, and industry, and promote agricultural arts and the manufactures of this country, especially Nevada Wool, and discount means, and discourage every species of extravagance and dissipation, especially all horse racing, and all kinds of gang and cockfighting, exhibitions, shows, plays, and other expensive diversions and entertainments. All right, so part of that is that these things have what? The taint of something British about them, and that's why they're being discouraged. In the 1778 version, whereas frequenting playhouses and theatrical t- entertainments has a fatal tendency to divert the minds of the people from the due attention to the means necessary for the defense of their country and preservation of their liberties, resolved that any person holding an office under the United States who shall act, promote, encourage, or attend such plays shall be deemed unworthy to hold such office, and shall be accordingly dismissed. And that includes you, General Washington that specifically uh, someone who this was directed at. The North American Embargo and the Old American Company's relocation to the West Indies triggered a theatrical boom, a renaissance in West Indian theaters across the archipelago from 1774 to 1783, but following the revolution, Lewis Hallam Jr. returns with the Old American Company to the United States to reestablish its home in either Philadelphia or New York. In that regard, according to Dunlap, whatever Holland Jr.'s professions of support for the U.S. cause upon his return, his political and cultural allegiances were considered suspect and repeatedly challenged by detractors of the theater, particularly in Pennsylvania, particularly by the Quaker elite, um, somewhat unfairly because he and Douglas had left agreeably once the embargo was laid down. They didn't claim loyalty to the British, they said, fine, we're we all go to the West Indies peacefully. So upon their return, they then charged with being disloyal, which they objected to. Quote, with peace returned, the players by profession, but not the whole company? Hallam arrived first from Jamaica, with a weak attachment as if to gain a foothill in the new republic. Philadelphia was the place chosen at which to effect a landing. But the people received the runaways, as they were called, from the revolution with frowns, quote. Ambiguities in Robinson's Yorker stratagem as we shall see, depend for meaning on devices like imposture and stratagem, and thus they're further complicated by the circumatlantic movement of actors acting and identities in the late 18th century, a phenomenon embodied by the Jamaican affiliations, are they loyal, are they disloyal, of the manager and many of the players of the old American company. In order to re-establish theater companies, like the old American company in Middle Atlantic and Northern cities, Federalist elites, Heather Nathans demonstrates, exerted substantial sway over the design and development of playhouses in the New Republic's urban centers in the 1780s and 90s. Accordingly, urban theaters became sites for partisan bickering and demonstration, writes Nathans, quote, The theater supporters and detractors alike recognized it as a powerful tool for influencing thought and for disseminating visions of American national identity. But could it do so objectively, democratically? Could a theater run by an elite group of wealthy urban men, as most of of the theaters were, were, fairly and accurately represent its audience? I think we know what Terry would say to that, right? Um, Perhaps no US author dramatic work more ingeniously relates to Federalist use of urban theater spaces for purposes of ideological control than Robinson's play, I want to suggest, triumphing in an embryonic U.S. commercial empire in the West Indies. Accordingly, arch-federalist financier and statesman Robert Morris, who you heard a little bit about as well um, this semester, was personally responsible for Lewis Hallam Jr. being allowed to house his old American company at the John Street Theater in New York, which was refurbished owing to federalist patronage of Hallam's Truth. So this is actually you can see, this is actually a pre-revolution view of the John Street Theater, um, that the Federalists, whoops, particularly Robert Morris, um, are patrons of post-revolution and allowing Hallam and his group to find a home. Now I'd like to turn from this brief account of the West Indian genealogy of early American um, theater to an account of the West Indian origins of early American commerce before returning to Robinson's play once more, Thoughts on the West Indian Trade uh, is an important document, though it's interesting. Before I had recovered this document, you, you do not see it cited hardly at all, and that's partly because it was never printed. It never became a printed document. It was always circulating in kind of manuscript, in um, a very difficult to decipher manuscript. It's an important document for how it illustrates the urgency of the U.S. West Indian trade issue to the U.S. political leaders in the late 18th century. Produced at the request of the Continental Congress by Robert Morris' Office of Finance, thoughts lays bare the ways in which competing visions visions for the future course of the nation and national character form themselves in relation not only to U.S. expansion on the continent, so-called empire for liberty, right, that Jefferson advocated, Uh, but also pushed for commercial empire in the hemisphere via the roots and roots of the West Indian trades. The document presented a template of arguments that could be deployed by U.S. ministers' plenipotentiary with the peace negotiations in Europe following the Revolutionary War to secure for the Republic the most advantageous commercial treaties possible in relationship to the West Indian colonies. In short, the text submits that free trade between the U.S. and the West Indies, and this is a part, you're going to hear this and you're going to say, wow, I didn't learn that in my history book. Um, but this was an urgent, ultra-urgent concern at the deliberations in Paris and, and elsewhere after the Revolution. as the treaties were being arranged. The text submits that the free trade between the U.S. and West Indies is essential in order to restore the pre-war levels of commercial prosperity that the former North American colonies had enjoyed. Concomitantly, thoughts insist that the most profitable West Indian plantations and the post-revolutionary era will be those administered by the European empires that resist imposing barriers to American trade with its West Indian possessions. Indeed, Thought stresses in anxious tones to US diplomats. negotiating terms of peace oversees the reciprocal importance of the West Indies and the U.S. to one another's another's prosperity. Every commercial man in America knows how great the consequence of the West Indian trade is to this country. The situation and the products of it are peculiarly crafted to the intercourse of the former. At present, it must be proper to view that America is as necessary to the West Indies as they are to us." In correspondence to U.S. government officials, John Adams, Minister of the British, and future President, characterized the situation in a remarkably similar manner. Such rhetorical overlap, and here you see that the document is circulating, right? Um, These were bullet points, talking points, that Morris was giving out to all the ministers, this is what you should be talking about in these negotiations, this is what you should be after, this is what you should be striving for, right? suggests that Adams was his Congress intended drawing on the talking points of thoughts as he formulated his position on a future U.S. presence in the West Indian trades. Every commercial man in America knows how great the consequence of the West Indian trade is to this country. The situation and the products of it are peculiarly crafted to an intercourse with the former. At present, it must be most popular to view that America is as necessary to West Indies as they are to us. Elsewhere, he says, the commerce of the West Indian Islands falls necessarily into the natural system of commerce of the United States. We are as necessary to them as they are to us, and there will be commerce between us. Adams' edict served as a warning. Should his European counterparts fail to accede to U.S. demands for free and unrestricted trade to the West Indies, as outlined in Thoughts, U.S. Americans and West Indians reliant on American goods for their own and their slave survival, will defy such trade bans, raising the specter of an expansion of the U.S. revolution into the West Indies in ways otherwise not desired, according to Adams, by either U.S. Americans or Britain's West Indian colonists. What Adams desires for the U.S. in the peace settlement, and this is important to understand, is not so much direct colonial governance of, but legal and unrestricted access to Europe's West Indian colonies. Rather than engaging in unwinnable commercial wars against powerful European navies for control of the West Indian colonies, the new nation wants Europe to persist in administering the colonies, but simultaneously to allow the U.S. a kind of parasitic, para-colonial benefit. Without licit access to West Europe's West Indian colonies, Adams presciently predicts an ever-receding horizon in regards to his fellow utopic vision for the U.S. as a nation of quote-unquote happiness and prosperity, he says. So, tellingly, not a single European empire listened to the Americans. None of them would grant the US free trade access to its West Indian colonies. They wanted to punish them, they wanted to protect their own mercantile system, and they were threatened by it, right? They believed that they didn't want just free trade, but they were, in, you know, had ambitions of taking over the entire West Indian trades. Perhaps not so ironically it would be left to the nation's first Secretary of the Treasury, archfederalist Alexander Hamilton, the one-time West Indian merchant clerk who according to the dictates of European natural history discourse about the New World was a degenerate West Indian Creole to mastermind a bold strategy for defying the hold of Europe's empires over, the destiny of not just the nation's political economy, but the hemisphere's. How might Hamilton accomplish this overwhelming challenge that he set for himself? in his adopted nation, without the U.S. Ultim- ultimately compromising its foundational ideals by repeating European empire's oppressive political and military policies and reproducing colonialism's exploitative economic practices. The tensions, the contradictions, the instabilities informing much literature and culture produced in the new, new Republic, such as Robinson's play we'll see in a bit, alternately forms and is then formed by Hamilton's controversial aggressively pro-commerce expansionist vision for addressing the f- that formidable task, indeed Hamilton during the early national period in his very person came to embody the great uneasiness that many white U.S. Americans across the political spectrum, he was constantly referred to in his letters by, Al- by John Adams as that Creole bastard, uh, that illegitimate son of a Scottish Bolingbroke, uh, not a lot of love loss between Adams and Hamilton. Um, about the unpredictable and potentially disastrous effects on the Anglo-American national character of extensive political, economic, and cross-cultural relations between the slave colonies with the West Indies and the putatively free and democratic states of the republic. More precisely, Hamilton's vision for the US as an empire for commerce reveals his and the emerging United States empire's indebtedness to their actual and imagined West Indian origins. Hamilton worked until age 18 as a West Indian merchant clerk in the island of Saint Croix, on behalf of New York shipping conglomerates, an occupation that uniquely prepared him to function as the new nation's chief economic strategist. And here you see a picture of the Saint Croix harbor uh, that Hamilton would have known very well, um, working here until age 18 when he came on the eve of the revolution for the United States. This is the very building in which he would have worked as a merchant clerk, and. Um, a fairly precocious one. He became a head merchant clerk at age 13 of a house, um, which tells you something about his acumen in that regard. At once sacred and profane, the contradictory figures of Alexander Hamilton as abject West Indian Creole. I think I opened my first bank account when I was 13, with my mother, though. It had to be signed, so I yeah. the contradictory figures of Alexander Hamilton is abject, and she, she regretted that, I think. <laughs> uh, and heroic U.S. American statesmen make manifest the mutually transformative encounters between the West Indies and the United States and the turbulent commercial cross currents of the Americas in the 1790s. So what I'm trying to suggest then, and this is a period map from the late 18th century, a British map, now, what we North Americans have a hard time understanding is that in many period maps of the time, North America is not central on the map. The West Indies are central. And that should let you know how crucial and central the West Indians, West Indies were uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. They weren't peripheral. They were a meridian in many ways. <clears throat> Hamilton's vision for the U.S. as an empire for commerce is perhaps best expressed in Federalist No. 11. Remember, the Federalist Papers of course, authored by Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, as we've heard earlier in the semester, to try and urge the passage of the Constitution. Um, what a lot of people do is they, they often cite Madison first, which is bizarre, um, given that Hamilton authored over 50 of the, the 80 plus federalist papers himself, uh, many of the most crucial ones. Jay just did a few, like six or seven, and then he got sick and tired and didn't want to do anymore. more. Um, Hamilton's vision for the US as an empire of commerce is expressed most cogently in Federalist words, where he suggests European notions about creole American degeneracy motivate, in part, his and the new nation's will to power. The superior Europe has long maintained to temporary deployment here on the left, to your, to your left side, um, herself as the mistress of the world and consider the rest of mankind is created for her benefit. Men admired his profound philosophers, and he's ta- talking about these Philisophs who write about the New World peoples, particularly West Indians, but also North Americans, as somehow degenerate in the land, right, from European norms. Men admired his profound philosophers, having direct terms attributed to our inhabitants of physical superiority and have gravely asserted that all animals, and with them to human species, given their proximity to what? To slavery. Their proximity to the tropical climates, uh, or to Native Americans, and so on and with them the human species degenerate in America, that even the dog cease to bark after having breathed a while in our atmosphere. Facts have too long supported these arrogant pretensions of the European, it belongs to us to vindicate the honor of the human race, and to teach that assuming brother moderation. That sounds a little like uh, the end of Adam's tone in his letter to Livingston. Um, thus, rather than risk reifying discourses about field pre- degeneracy, that legitimate Europe's imperial domination of U.S. commerce. Hamilton proposes the strategic expansion of commerce and a renovated republicanism in order to disrupt the hold of Europe's commerce and pseudo-scientific discourses over the United States and the hemisphere. For Hamilton, and this is crucial to understand, the model U.S. empire flows not east and west, but north and south. His notion of empire is not bent on continental expansion and conquest but the command of the hemisphere's tradeways, its oceans, its rivers, and especially, something he knew very well, the Caribbean Sea. As Hamilton envisions the future time space of US American empire, quote, let Americans disdain to be the instruments of European greatness. Let the 13 states bound together in a strict and indissoluble union concur in erecting one great American system superior to the control of all transatlantic force or influence and able to dictate the terms of the connection between the old and the new world." Unquote. In such a way, Federalist 11 is an especially cycle document and early U.S. discourse about empire. It anticipates and predicts the present appetite for economic communities, the triumphal tone of U.S. global capitalism, and the attendant sway of the U.S. over the cultural condition of the Western Hemisphere. Federalist 11 establishes the proposition that the United States, rather than remain hostage to European colonial and imperial desire, might one day become, quote, the arbiter of Europe and America. Breathtaking. Replacing European New World despotism with a powerful, commercially driven federal republic. As Hamilton notes, even without the backing of the United Nations, after all these states on the Yarkins Confederation, he thinks are these almost islands unto themselves, like he would have understood very well from living in the West Indies, right? U.S. traders and merchants have inculcated a profound sense of uneasiness in the empires of Europe about their potentially diminished role in the Western Hemisphere. Writes Hamilton, and that's the second excerpt from Federalist Eleven on this slide. There are appearances to authorize the supposition that the adventurous spirit, which distinguishes the commercial character of America, has already excited uneasy sensations in several of the maritime powers of Europe, unquote. In turn, Hamilton argues, European nations have become, quote, apprehensive of our too great interference in that West Indian carrying trade, which is the support of their navigation and the foundation of their naval strength. Those of them which have colonies in America look forward to what this country is capable of becoming with painful solitude, Hamilton, su- Hamilton suggests there's something instinctive- instinctively powerful about U.S. commerce that unsettles, agitates, and frightens European colonial forces, such as they apprehend the demise of their influence in the Western Hemisphere, even at the moment of their greatest naval strength and the new nation's military puniness. Hamilton's manifesto thus pivots on the formation of a vision to be espoused by politicians and the various commercial interests of the U.S. American as a hemispheric man of commerce, a sort of colossus of roads, striding across the parts of the Atlantic and the Caribbean. Hamilton believed that it would take 50 or more years to amass the commercial and military strength necessary, quote, to incline the balance of European competitions in this part of the world as our interests may dictate, unquote. So in the meantime, efforts to decolonize the minds and bodies of US Americans in the face of ongoing European predations on the nation's sovereignty meant depending on uniquely Creole strategies of resistance. More precisely, and here you can think a little about what the topic of Clarence Maxwell's talk was last time, right on Bermuda and its role in, in the Atlantic revolutionary world. The spirit summoning forth the US commercial empire was inextricably bound up in the patriotic spirit, spirit of national resistance that precipitated revolution. One mercantile figure that embodies the revolutionary origins of the spirit guiding the hemispheric man. In his navigation of the treacherous waters of the Atlantic in the Caribbean Sea is the smuggler. Prior to and during the revolution the Sons of Liberty employed a full range of deceptive practices in order to thwart imperial efforts to regulate and to limit the liberalizing tendencies of trade with the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act and so on. The British suggested these illicit practices were attributable to the degeneracy of the Americans. The colonists, however, transformed the smuggler into a figure of rebellion and defiance. Smuggling on the left with Bermuda sloops, an ongoing privateering war on the right between two American ships and two British ships, a frequent occurrence in the 1790s and 80s. One particularly dangerous maneuver was the smuggling practice that involved ships losing their identity. According to this practice, North American vessels would change their bottoms in foreign ports, like Martinique, from American to French, for example, in order that they might trade freely with the French colonies without fear of being seized by the British. Also, by trading with neutral islands like Hamilton-St. Croix, many North American merchant ships, like those operated by the Krugers, the New York-based merchant family for whom Hamilton clerked in St. Croix as a youth, secured false conduct passes, and they were able to proceed to French islands and from thence to Europe in violation of British law. Practices like a ship's losing its identity allowed Philadelphia and New York merchants to smuggle contraband, including hundreds of thousands of dollars of sugar, molasses, and other West Indian products in plain view. Equally significant, these commercial strategies of resistance instilled in many US Americans a spirit of patriotic virtue and suggested to them the virtue of pursuing their economic freedom. If Thomas Jefferson's US farmer accrued virtue according to the Empire of Liberty in proportion to his ability to adapt to the hospitable North American landscape, Hamilton's hemispheric man drew on the tradition of Creole as rebel trader to suggest the ways in which virtue itself could be made to respond and adapt to an environment rendered hostile, hostile by European aggression. Fluidity of identity, even the momentary losing of one's identity might be necessary in order to protect the higher virtues of freedom and liberty underwriting the empire for commerce. Hamilton himself in his merchant clerk service, mixing of Creole identities and his patriotic writings embodies the spirit of hemispheric man. To read Hamilton's writings about empire in the Federalist Papers is to have a sense of the United States perpetually at siege inside and outside its borders, and of Hamilton trying to right the ship of progress as the nation's chief steward. Hamilton as manager of the nation's property, its finances, and commercial affairs, as statesman setting the course of a surging empire, as chief commercial officer navigating a U.S. ship of state, and the maelstrom of Europe's ongoing aggressions. Hamilton's early life had been marked by uprooting and dispossession in an archipelago whose chaotic rhythms responded to European empires perpetually at war. The West Indies in the last half of the 18th century were spaces of lost identities. An island's imperial affiliation might change not once or twice, but several times within a matter of years according to ever-shifting alliances between France, Spain, and Britain. In the turbulent and violent plantation economies, the tensions between white Creoles and their slaves. The force of European discourses about West Indian inferiority made forging a coherent sense of self, let alone national belonging, next to unthinkable. Thus his West Indian mercantile experiences and his tutelage under Washington as his aide-de-camp in the revolution provided Hamilton with the methods and facility to do now for the independent nation and himself what had been denied under empire, secure a sense of identity and belonging. So what does all this mean for the Yorker's stratagem and our understanding of it? A two-act afterpiece, or farce, set in the West Indies. This is the synopsis that I've reproduced for you right on the, on the back side of your playbill. Amont, Amant, an Anglo-American businessman, seeks to win the hand of Sophia Belange, a West Indian Creole girl of fortune, with whom he fell in love during their boarding school days in New York. Aman's voyage to the West Indies aboard a U.S. merchant vessel has been prompted, we are told, by a frantic letter he's received from Sophia in which he informs her of her guardian's tyranny over her. So named, owing to his unscrupulous practices, proprietor of a West Indian trading house, Finger Cash, one that, like, Hamilton would have worked in, right? Finger Cash refuses Sophia access to the inheritance that her parents have left her, which he stores with other monies in pilfered goods in his miser's strong box. Shortly after his arrival on the island, Amant learns that Sophie is not Fingercash's only victim. Fingercash intends to ruin his daughter Louise's life and future as well by marrying her off to a black planter named Banana in exchange for a tidy sum. So banana becomes this kind of new incarnation of what? Mungo, padlock, right? And it's played by, if you look at your playbill, none other than Robinson himself in Blackface, the character. By means of a superior stratagem, the ability to what? Lose one's identity as necessary. In an ever-widening circle of collaborators, Amant eventually thwarts Finger Cash's evil designs against the acceptable boundaries of sentiment. With the cooperation of the ship's captain, his stratagem entails disguising himself as a Yankee trader with a lucrative cargo of lumber, livestock, and other items. By proffering his phony stock of goods, Amant plans to seduce the avaricious finger cash into exchanging Miss Belange and her tidy inheritance. When the soon-to-be-upgraded upgraded finger ca- cash exclaims in an aside to the audience, quote, how I do long to prey upon a fa- bacon-fed Yankee, and that probably would have been said on the stage in, a, in dialect, right, in Creole dialect. He knows not of or to whom, and not, not just probably, it definitely would have been played in dialect. He knows not of or to whom he speaks. A mercantile representative of the rising U.S. commercial empire and a largely pro-Federalist audience. So Ahmet's willingness to don a Yankee mask in the furtherance of his stratagem is significant on, metatextual and, on textual and metatextual levels, right? Um, like the creator, Robinson, Ahmet demonstrates the facility for manipulating uh, Creole traits that mark him according to the terms of European colonial discourse as stereotypically primitive. Thus, the actions of playwright and character alike betray the seductiveness of trading simultaneously in multiple realms, goods, values, identities, and the exertion required to discern the authentic from the counterfeit, the virtuous from the scandalous, and the pure from the tainted. But how does one position, this is a question I have for, for us, how does one position beyond the idealized stage of Robinson's play in the urban spaces of the United States or the West Indies? Tell the real or virtuous US man of commerce from his West Indian imposture, if the West Indian imposture is but another version of oneself." I should say about what's partly inventive here about, not just partly, what's really inventive about Robinson's use of the Yankee figure on stage, which would become a staple in 19th century um, American uh, theater productions, it's, it's, from what I can tell, it's the second stage Yankee we get. The first is famously in Royal Tyler's The Contrast, um, 1787 written and then published finally in 1790. And that play, the Yankee, is, is basically a country bumpkin. Right? Um, Dimple is engaged to a woman. Uh, he's like an Anglophile um, figure who's engaged to a woman. But on the side, he's trying to carry on dalliances or affairs with uh, her friends Charlotte and Letitia. When Colonel Manley arrives from Massachusetts, and Colonel Manley is actually, this is, this is the contrast, Tyler's play, is I'm talking about. When he arrives to New York from Massachusetts, and he's there to try and get um, pensions for Revolutionary War heroes and soldiers who haven't been getting them, right? Um, he intercepts Dimple as he's about to rape Charlotte, his own sister. Uh, and so what's interesting about that, is um, uh, the the Yankee sidekick that he has with him, disfigured Jonathan, right? He finds himself in a theater at one point in the play and doesn't even understand he's in a theater because he's never seen it before. He thinks, what, it is reality in the theater. What what, What Robinson does is he takes that kind of stylized, primitive, kind of degenerate Yankee figure and makes him into a confidence man. It, Amant is wearing that mask, but beneath, he's something quite different, right? He's a merchant. He's a businessman. He's educated. So he's manipulating that veneer in order to get something. Amant's storyline is but one of many that converges Robinson's drama unfolds. The play's subtitled Banana's Wedding denotes a subplot that suggests the ways in which the mercantile agents of U.S. Empire depend upon a second term for the successful dissemination at home and abroad of their professedly pure political and economic values. That term is not, as U.S. nationalist rhetoric objects, it's opposite, but it's constitutive double, a shadow plot of the American hemispheric dream of empire, hemispheric slavery. Accordingly, what Robinson's play reveals are the manifold ways in which a budding American nationalism imagines itself through and against the West Indies. West Indian Creole culture and European colonialism, in the West Indies function in the ima- American imagination as opposition and thus legitimating figures for empire and simultaneously provided Northern Federalists like Hamilton a means of displacing domestic anxieties about racial contagion and slavery. This West Indian-centered discourse justified the commercial and geographical ex- expansion of the United States across national borders. Yet these expansionist impulses Shaped as they were by a highly ambivalent discursive stance towards an emergent series of crises within the nation, were shaped um, by a highly ambivalent discursive stance towards an emergent series of crises within the nation's borders. Robinson's shadow plot to Hamon's triumphal quest for West Indian women, wealth, and commodities raises the specter of such ambivalence. So, the figure that concretizes this tension, right, this ambivalence in the play, is none other than miscegenation by right, the mixing of races or types. And coincidental to the play in the 1790s, you began to see the first um, anti-miscegenation statutes passed, the first one in Massachusetts, and then Thomas Jefferson, of all folks, authored the one that would really be passed in Virginia. The specific figure that concretizes these tensions in the New Yorker's strategy and West Indian miscegenation signals the widespread contamination of the play's West Indian society by colonialism and highlights the contrasting purity of the United States, its culture, and its institutions. The unscrupulous West Indian merchant in Finger Cash emblematizes the island's abandonment of the constitutional principles upholding the rising American empire. Although he schemes to fleece Amant of his ship's cargo in the process of abandoning all sense of economic and legal fairness, Finger Cash's foremost crime is his plot to marry Louisa, his white Creole daughter, to a black planter a decision he justifies solely on the basis of material gain and which predicts a U.S. intervention under the pretext of fostering within the island pure moral and ethical constitutional values that blood is made to figure in U.S. jurisprudence the anti-miscegenation statutes that I was just gesturing to, right? Of all people that Thomas Jefferson authored, he would now think fathered many mixed-race children um, with Sally Hemmings and or his relatives. Um. Thus the play's central metaphor, miscegenation, exposes the contaminated character of the West Indies on the one hand and divulges the island's need for the purifying effects of U.S. Republican democracy on the other. Toward that end, Robinson's drama relies on a series of binaries for meaning, including virtue and immorality, industry and exploitation, freedom and slavery, and justice and illegitimacy. Yeah, what I've been suggesting, right, is that the plays meaning pivots on a series of interrelated devices that threaten to blur those distinctions, among them stratagem in the title, mimicry, and imposture. Ultimately, all these things circulate within an economy, value, economy values pitted in U.S. racial purity and hemispheric ascendance on the one hand against West Indian racial contamination and European colonial degeneracy on the other. At once part and parcel for West Indian degeneracy, the play's black culture and characters provide for it provoke and sustain multiple revolutions that upset the balance and character of power by the play's end, ironically, without, never, without ever having rebelled themselves. Robinson, in turn, exploits the specter of black slave rebellion for purposes of theatrical recognition and prestige, fomenting a series of dazzling tropes that depend upon their effect on the way blackness means in the hemisphere in relationship to whiteness in theaters, not only in Europe, but in the United States. Perhaps unsurprisingly then, Robinson's play culminates with several acts of slave rebellion orchestrated by the agents and allies of the U.S. empire for commerce. So, let me talk about these a little bit. One is organized by this figure, Ledger. Ledger, how does Ledger come to be in the island? Ledger, it turns out, is a hemispheric man of commerce, um, who when you read between the lines of the play, has come to be on this island because he's been captured as a result of a privateering um, raid on a US ship. Uh, uh, finger Cash, right, he bails him out of prison, but in doing so, he becomes indebted to Finger Cash and he must now become his merchant clerk. So he joins this long line of American merchant clerks uh, like Hamilton, who were applying the trades, but now he's in a position of um, subservience, right, to Finger Cash. Um, as an impressed U.S. merchant, um, Finger, Cash's, Finger Cash's discounted accountant seizes on his meticulous records of Fingercash's dishonest business dealings while leading a black-faced rebellion for freedom. Accordingly, the play asks us to consider within its strictly regulated comic frame. How one polices the border between ignorant bumpkin and sly businessman in the case of Amant's disguise, right? Hero and villain, master and slave. In Imitation White and Imitation Black, when items in each pair are mutually cons- constituted and functioning a society hobbled by fraud and deception. Indeed, by trans- transgressing the rules of identity in the West Indies and assuming the guise of the composite Yankee, Amant does trigger a revolution by means of dissemblance. In the process of manipulating the multiple stratagems that have taken hold of the island, Amont lures Fingercash to the ship's dock, whereupon Fingercash proceeds to king the Frenchman, another character on your list there. He's a character who has carried on an illicit affair with Fingercash's wife behind his back, and whom Amont has directed to disguise himself as Ledger. As he beats the howling Frenchman, Fingercash yells out, Changing your language won't do, we were prepared for you, although Lilay was, in other words, he believes that Ledger is speaking French because he doesn't want to be sent away, um, but it actually is the Frenchman because Amantz again thwarted his stratagem with his own. Right? Of course, the cuckolded finger hash is only half right. His wife and Louisa was indeed not ready for the Frenchman, though the rebellious Louisa was ready for the for Ledger. Indeed, they are being married on another part of the island. In other words, Louisa. And Ledger, in blackface as Banana, is off getting married, even as Louise's father, Finger Cash, thinks he's hustling Ledger on board, according to a previous agreement with Amant to take him away. He is wrong, too, about changing one's language, Amant proves it will do. By adopting a Yankee dialect, Amant has showed the audience that the unprincipled West Indian merchant is not prepared to stem the rising tide of the American empire for commerce. Confident that Ledger, not the Frenchman, is now secured aboard Amont's merchant vessel, in his and his stratagem to marry Louisa de Banana in success, Fingercash returns to his counting house, where he learns that he has been had by an elaborate counter-masquerade. The colony's governor holds the accounting sheet Ledger um, that he has been sent detailing Fingercash's frauds and schemes, and Ledger, stripping away his black mask in dramatic fashion, reveals that he. Not Banana, as Finger Cash is intended, has just been married to Louisa. While moaning about having been done in by a quote-unquote wicked black plot, or more precisely, a wicked white one in blackface, Finger Cash is further undone when Amont presses his claim on Sophia and her fortune in the voice of an educated, urbane businessman, and not a clownish Jonathan. Whereupon Finger Clash exclaims, Well, this makes the good old saying that True Bed Yankee is a match for the devil, unquote. American participation in the hemisphere will not erode the bonds between family and community or diminish the values and institutions of the United States, Robinson's play suggests. Rather, it is precisely the values and institutions of the United States that will renovate the hemisphere of villages, including the colonies of the West Indies, uniting them against the European colonial menace and their service of a new American empire with a political, social, and ne- economic network all of its own. Most stunning of all is the ameliorative effect the Sons of Columbia have on Finger Cash himself. Acknowledging the governor's judgment that he has obliged everyone around him, quote, to descend to the lowest arse to defeat you and your villainy, Fingercash vows to refashion himself from the mold of the Sons of Liberty from the land of freedom that he had once mocked. His apology signals what? This kind of reorientation in the dreamscape, a Robinson's play of the hierarchical structures of dominance in the hemisphere. Having cleansed the island of its impurities, rescued its women from besmirchment, and pocketed their fiancés' fortunes, Ahmed and Ledger prepare to set sail for the United States with the assurance that, on this island at least, they have secured a hospitable port of call for the U.S. merchantmen plying their trades on behalf of the U.S. empire for commerce. In the Yorkish stratagem, Robinson summons forth a utopian empire, but he does so I've been suggesting by displacing onto the West Indies real conflicts that exist at home. In Robinson's play, the West Indies, its inhabitants and its cultural effects are cast as the rare anxieties they are meant to signify corrections of ostensibly curved bloodlines and codes of conduct. So, here's what I mean. It would have been easier, of course, for Northern audiences and Middle Atlantic audiences to laugh at the play's perversions centered on race, rebellion, and imposture because they are represented in a West Indian setting as opposed to a Southern U.S. one. Accordingly, Robinson's play would have been less overtly suggestive about challenges to national myths about purity and virtue. What does it say that a play about Southern U.S. slave culture had not to this point been written or produced on the Northern stage? What happens when the overlap between the United States and West Indian slave cultures is made explicit? What are the consequences on the formation of the United States political economy and culture or its grand designs for, em- for hemispheric empire when the distinguishing signs of West Indian and Southern U.S. slave societies begin to bleed together and blur? Historians Stanley Elkins and Eric McKittrick charge a series of foreign relations crises in the 1790s that thwarted attempts by the new republic leaders like Hamilton to realize what the authors identify as Hamilton's vision for the U.S. as a mercantilist utopia, or what I've termed it, empire of commerce, right? In almost every instance, these crises pivot in crucial ways on the U.S. government's persistent efforts, to persuade the British or French to enter into and abide by financial and/or military pacts or trade agreements granting the U.S. more substantial, unfettered access to the West Indian trades, leaving the U.S. mired in a prolonged what we might call a Creole complex in some ways. So Robinson's play might be reclaimed, I'm suggesting, by scholars of U.S. American literature and theater and other forms of culture, by resituating alongside other works. Produced in the New Republic. And you met, I started with a quote from Charles Brockton Brown's brother, the trader, urging the establishment of theaters for mercantile purposes. But it's Brown's highly theatrical novels themselves, not ones that we've read in our class, actually. Uh, texts like Arthur Mervyn and Hormon and others, which speak to this question of the U.S. involvement in the West Indian trades, that interrogate U.S. aspirations for commercial empire instead of celebrating it as Robinson's play. And such works. West Indian societies and cultures function as simultaneously the most attractive sites for, as in Robinson's play, or threats to, as in, for example, Charles Brock and Brown's novels, U.S. commercial ambition in the hemisphere and pure notions of national character and culture. And I'll stop there, see what kinds of questions you have. one of three parts, the three parts, about
1: the period together, whatever you want to ask. Excuse me, I have a number of questions Great. Um, The first one is straightforward. I remember being in Charleston in the 1990s. And there's a theater there established, according to the Charlestonians, I don't remember its name, okay, as the first colonial theater in America, or the first theater in America. Which runs the
0: counter to what you're saying. Well, no, it, it, I think that's right. That theater, it's the first theater, but it's not the first professional. Um, Douglas was the first one to establish really professionally built theaters. Uh, sure. a, lot of the, a lot of the colonies, including Charleston, which had a very vibrant theater culture, and is actually, uh, thinking back to Ashley White's talk on the Haitian Revolution, is heavily influenced by, uh, in its theater culture in the 1780s and 90s, and by West Indian immigrants, refugees from the Haitian Revolution. Right. Oh. A lot of the different colonies um, into the early, you know, 18th century, they have vibrant theater cultures, but many of them lack sizable, um, respectable playhouses in which to play them. So first, there are always kind of weird things to articulate. What, what, what is important is, is, is what, something that Maurice Romel pointed out, is that Southwark uh, was one of several major playhouses that Douglas. Coming from Jamaica as part of the old American company, established um, the Williamsburg Theater, uh, New York's Theater, and so so the company and Douglas are important now. But relevant to that question, um, did you have? Was there anything else in particular about that? Or yeah,
1: no, no, no. That was just that was. Yeah, an observation. Yeah. The company obviously well established, and the theaters well established. This uh, uh, is only the first so-called American play. What was their repertoire like? What, what least, else? did yeah, Was yeah. a fairly vast number of works that they did. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I, I on a night like this,
0: when, I mean, this is something that uh, Jeff Richards talked about. Those of you were at the Philadelphia's, uh, Franklin's Philadelphia Symposium, if you weren't there, he talked about the ways in which, uh, if you went to the theater thinking you were going to see a bunch of originally authored American plays, you would be sadly disappointed at this time, right? So. Robinson's play was literally only performed two times in Philadelphia and four times in New York. Uh, I'm going to, as a way of transitioning to next week's talk, I'm going to tell you about the second originally authored U.S. play in the 1790s to get published, there's really only two. Now, when I say originally authored, this is a way of getting at your question, right? What we're starting to do is rethink what we mean by that. What we're finding is that on a night like when the orchestra was played in the Philadelphia Playhouse, it could well have been played, uh, I'm trying to remember what the, uh, the main, uh, this would have been played either before or after a major play, like The Tempest, for example. Shakespeare's plays were extraordinarily popular. Um, all kinds of Elizabethan drama, uh, restoration comedies, parses, um, so very British. Uh, but. What we're starting to understand by looking at play goals and, and, and reviews and reading them more deeply is that just because they were British named did not mean they weren't adapted and adopted to American circumstances. So, what you find is, for example, plays like Richard III, very popular, Addison's Cato, um, very popular. Plays in which tyrannical figures uh, are thwarted by subservient figures. In other words, they could be adapted and appropriated for American nationalist purposes. So we, we, while they're predominantly in Philadelphia, New York, and Boston stages, British um, plays of British descent, we can't always be sure how they're being performed. <laughs> uh, many of them, we have no extant scripts. Um, but we know from the ways the scenery is described. For example, you talk about the Charleston Theater is really fascinating. In this regard, right um, after the Haitian Revolution, and the flooding of, as Ashley White talked about, I mean, I, I sort of disagree a little bit with, with Ashley that I think the, the refugees have a very different impact in different places. Like in New Orleans, the Haitian Revolution in America is very different than it is in in Boston, and, and obviously Charleston is really interesting. I mean, the architecture. Uh, the effect and the architecture of the, of the was from San you can still see it from, in various places. Um, you just go to the Battery in Charleston, out front, and that's a very West Indian sort of thing to have. Uh, but immediately after, as the Haitian Revolution was underway, John Lambert, a traveler from London, records his travels to Charleston. What does he? He goes to see Othello. Like he's going to see Othello, and what he thinks he's going to see is like you would see on the stage in what in England, a white actor playing Othello in blackface. And what he's amazed and shocked by in he remarks on is there was something even more pernicious and strange, which was there was a ban two weeks before he got there of any white actors playing any black characters in blackface. So white characters then had to what? They had to play Othello white. So what the strange contorted mimesis, the sort of pathology here is that what are whites doing? They're banishing themselves from playing, imitating black characters in what They're not banning blacks from the stage. They're banning themselves, masquerade as blacks playing the, the stage, right? So that's an example of, of uh, well, Lambert's is. And he, he goes on right like the is it a corruption and bastardization of Othello, and it, he's never seen anything this. But there's an example, right? And, and you also see in Charleston, Charleston uh, the theater was trying to show, for example, the way the, um, the Lancet of the Tempest gets adapted in particular kinds of ways for, for Charleston's purposes. So those are the kinds of plays you see, but we can't trust that what you see is what you think you'd see if you really were dependent upon how those plays got creolized, I guess is the right word, right? Adapted for
1: the purposes of particular creole colonial societies. I was curious, I, I know about it. Adams's Kato was the one they did it for mm. and I'm curious as to right. and now we're talking about the use of it as for propaganda for post-revolution. Why didn't they see the use of it as what we would now call agitprop? Uh, as a what? As, as theater for propaganda purposes during the revolution. Instead, they abandoned it. Banned it, in fact. Well, and I, you know Washington yep. did use that that production of Cato to sort of encourage. Yeah, him yeah He him. wasn't. Uh, yeah. It wasn't his intent to. Well, I think
0: that's that gets to the kind of creole complex thing. I think where you know that the one hand, they're trying to banish all things British, um, anything that might reek of extravagance, and, and of course it is true that as, as Jeff talked to us about that, the, the theaters are very hierarchical, right? That, that the elites would go there, like Washington, to sort of be seen at the theater, and then in the pit you have the lower classes, right, right. who would be there, and and so they were very carefully arranged, and there were a lot of British plays being played, so. Um, You know, the theater developed a a reputation for being almost anglophilic. And I think that's, and yet, what I've been trying to suggest is that American identity is complicated. And that simply because you have a devotion to theater, it doesn't mean you can't reanimate that theater for nationalist purposes in the ways that you're smartly suggesting. But definitely not in Pennsylvania, right? Where the Quaker elites were the ones who really um, broke the statute. And uh, but you know I, I'm not, I'm not going to resolve that question because I think the way you ask that you're suggesting the contradiction and the problem that persists right well after the revolution and theaters do get reappropriated the theaters from the 17 the old American Company at two years after this is done the yellow fever epidemics of 1793 and then later 1798 the poor the constant rivalries and tensions between republicans, theatergoers, and federalists, begin to radically change the theater culture. You get immigrants from Haiti, for example, into Charleston, Philadelphia, who start performing circuses and road dances, and this performs alternative theaters, street, street theaters that are cheaper, more democratic, possibly, right? So all of this begins to reshape and redefine um, the American theater, and so the American theater looks very different and its used for very nationalist, kind of purposes in the 19th century, in a way that People didn't see it being done so necessary, or take advantage of it in that kind of way. But part of it was that the Hobby the, the customers wanted British things. Yeah. Um, they, they You could do an American written play once in a while, but if you tried to do an entire program of American stuff, they'd be throwing tomatoes at you and apples <laughs> and it would get very unruly. But conversely, many theater riots in the 1790s were a result of the opposite. In Boston, there was one, in New York, there was one where mechanics and others began to attack these theaters for their elite status. And, and so the theater space itself, as much as the plays
1: become sites of contestation. Quick question about this particular work. I'm just looking at the context of uh, the impudent servant. Is this, this is drawn from French farce uh, Moliere and then from Cometi de l'Arte, right?
0: No, th- th- this, I would say that Possibly, I mean, we can't, Robinson, you know, the, the appropriation of it is, is kind of hard to read. I think it's more Padlock, though,
1: probably. You know, the
0: Padlock, hit the Mongo. in fact, Dunlop says in his review of the play that Banana played, uh, Robinson played Banana as a kind of tawny Mongo, which means he wasn't as black as Mungo was, and he did it as a kind of, which is very interesting description. What does it mean when he describes being tawny? Is he black or not? It suggests he's what kind of, Mulatto, more. Link's right? Race. What? Big race. Yeah, which is even more dangerous, right? If you can't be clearly defined as one, it, it's a symbol of what's wrong with West Indies. We They've they, they, they corrupted pure bloodlines in such a way that we have, he's tiny. We don't even know what he is. So, but I think, I think some of the lines and some of the characterizations, they probably descend more from Bickerstaff's padlock. Um, but but I, I don't think there's any one play that there, there are several influences. When you say original, again, and that's another thing, you know, even though it is. It's got an original plot in some ways and characters. It's highly, um, it descends from a number of British and possibly French
1: plays as well as you're suggesting. Yeah. Just to rather aside, I'm working on a, a black American actor named Ira Aldridge. Yeah. Or he played years. off, he was a big fellow. Oh, right? He was a bigger fellow, but you know what? He played all of his other roles in Whiteface. Yeah, Whiteface, which is right. I mean, there is, great. Aldridge
0: is, you know more than I do, yeah. one of the great actors. So oh, yeah, um, but
1: always in Europe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot. Alex. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know of any theaters that went underground, so to speak, as a result of the ban? given that theater is a form of public discourse?
0: Well, well yeah, I mean, um, the, the band, I should say, the band which was interesting was in Philadelphia. The ban is not lifted until um, 1788. So when the Old American Company first comes back, there Federalists and others they kind of just allow them to keep playing. So there there is an underground um, theater that is performing. I mean, this is true in like Boston, where the, it was a little slow to repeal the embargo after the war. Um, so even after the war, you had an underground theater that was playing. But they had to be careful. I mean, a lot of times they would they would advertise. Performances as operas instead of plays, right? And so they'd say, Come see an
1: opera,
0: a uh, Bickerstaff's. They'd retitle it as some kind of opera, and of course, there is operatic performances in the play, but that was a way of getting around it because musical, uh, the opera wasn't banned post the revolution, it was just theater, right? Before the revolution, although it not on the Valley Forest, they played Cato. The British were playing obviously performances all over the place and reoccupying theaters like the John Street Theater during the Revolution was occupied by the British. But um, it was it was something that was policed pretty aggressively. And a lot of the companies, as I told you, it's hard to identify them nationally because this is part of what I'm interested in is how um, performers and theater companies put pressure in the way that. Rochelle's up talked about the Irish view on our very notions of citizenship, and national identity as being something that's fixed or bounded. In many ways, they're, they're not either loyal or disloyal, but neither nor, but something else, right? Which is they're their British actors in the Anglo-American world as it emerges, who circulate between the West Indies and Jamaica and move backward and forward as necessary. So, like I said, when the embargo was pronounced, a lot of those troops fled to, went to the West Indies, and they had a massive boom in theater on the islands. Um, so some underground, but a lot of them just moved to a place that's hospitable, to theater where the embargo doesn't hold. So
1: operas were okay. Principally oh,
0: post-revolution, awesome. but yeah, I mean, I, I think in, in the revolution itself that if you, if you carried on too much opera, people would have come to see you about it. It's, 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 that's
1: a privilege entertainment we, we need to, it's know, as stupid. an American. So distinct, the European, Italian, German—you know—that sort of. Yeah. And I know what they were really against was the British. The, the, the British, British, yeah, that's British right, that's British. right. Was the theater. Yeah. So that was the big deal. It was really British versus. I think
0: they star is a British commodity, right? That your the theater companies and performances, like the other items, tea and others, that they're they part of the embargo. That there's a principle um, behind it. And, but there's also a financial reason why you're embar- there's an embargo on it. So yeah, there became, as you suggest, a kind of a British thing that had to be boycotted.
1: Oh, no. <laughs> is the degenerate Yankee figure or Yankee Creole, or, and and or and elevates him anew as the smuggler right, um, right. figure. That seems very convenient um, to talk about smuggling then as a kind of a heroic, a heroic virtuous right, practice, right. all the uh, in order to continue to expand your American empire. So I, I'm just curious how you evaluate, I guess, this kind of. Um, high rhetoric to, that tries to redeem what some might say. Because you talked about the way in which Europe looked at the exact same practices as a kind of base and degenerate set of right. operations. Yeah.
0: Uh, and I don't think all Americans looked at them the same way. And by 1800, the Federalists were done, right, in terms of their political force. I would, say, I, would, I, would I would argue that we live in the triumph of Hamilton's version and empire, not Jefferson's. That we live in a moment where it never, be, uh, Hamilton would be thrilled with the United States as it is in its, its role in the world, its its commercial power. I think everything he predicted has come true, but in 1800 the, the Federals were out of power, and a lot of that the reason was that for the very what you're suggesting, the the sort of tension between um, real and the real and the fake. Um, that uh, people suspected that the Federalists, as Terry Bowden talked about, were lacing their own pockets and privileging commercial and political policies that really benefited the few over and against the majority in the working classes. Um, Thus you have mechanics riots at theaters. Uh, So I think that
1: so even within the nation, there's yeah. a kind of suspicion that this is a, a more, more of a rhetorical position as opposed to a... a
0: that's right. And, and I also think that Europeans continue, within the nation, outside the nation, as I suggested, both France and England kind of scoffed at the U.S.'s claim of neutrality. If you're going to hire yourself as a mercenary on one side or the other, if you're going to change your shirts, that's war. Basically, so Americans would protest when their sailors would be taken off these ships and impressed into, as is the case of Ledger, right in the play, into service on a British naval vessel or a French naval vessel, put into prison. But they all said, "Look, you, by very virtue of exploiting the fact that we're at war, to take advantage of that to serve your own purposes and enrich yourself over and against one side or the other, you're becoming a combatant in that, or you're becoming a kind of mercenary who's a, a kind of um, a black op figure, you know, a higher sort of gun one side or the other. And you, if you're if you're benefiting the French colonies by carrying things to them and we're at with them, we we will take your ships as we will take French ships. French are saying if we're at war with the British and you're carrying things and we're, we're to the British, we will take your people and your ships. So they can never get these kinds of in fact the end of the, the end of the third party pivoted on this the quasi-war with France in, in, in the end of the 1790s. Hamilton had this scheme that he was, he was trying to get war bonds through Congress where he would become the Admiral of the Navy and they would lead this you know, armada of ships down the South and take over the Spanish West Indies and then Latin America. And behind his back, Adams negotiated a, tr- a treaty with the French, which totally alienated one side of the Federalist Party against the other. and. Um, and that was the end, basically. Um, the, the whole election went badly because Hamilton dismerged uh, Adams in public and print, and vice versa, and it was it was a party was in crisis. We've seen parties like that in recent times. Um, so I think internationally and locally, that, that tension between the ideologically pure or virtuous and the reality which is less clear or less pure at times um, plays itself out in some really passive.
1: And we kind of see that in Rupert Stratagem, too, you know, where on the one hand, um, Armand is, uh, at least competitively speaking, much more virtuous. Right, on the level of circus level. And place. yet, um, as you noted, too, he does sail away with the girl and all her money and right. other people's money as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you said well, it's, it's probably past the time, now I don't know people go, but I, but I think you're right about that. Um, I think, you know, we are great Robinson. Robinson's sensitive to the congregations. Um, and remember, the, the people playing this play in the theater house, trying to think of like her empire, are the very people who weren't allowed to come to Philadelphia because people questioned their loyalties, do you understand? So Hallam Jr., Robinson, these are all people who were, who were suspected of being loyalists. And now they're on stage to us performing the US as an empire. How do we trust that? Um, but I think Robinson's very cagey about this. He's very savvy about it. He knows how to play circuses and depths in the way that it's different for commercial purposes. After all, who's, who, who made it possible for them to be to play the play? Robert Morris and the Federalists. They renovated the theater. In turn, they're promoting their policies in, in the theater. Thanks. Next time, Hester Bloom is going to talk to us about the Barbary captive narrative and a different conflict um, in the Orient. Um, You saw that Somali pirates went after one of our vessels again yesterday? Yeah. This, what she's going to talk about, this is the roots, the origins of that very conflict. Thank you.